Um, today, uh, before we launch into our continuing sermon series uh, on the Ten Commandments, I, I just want to let you know that I was uh, deeply burdened this week. Deeply <laughs> burdened this week because uh, I needed to do two things today. I needed to talk to you about our financial status of our church, and I need to talk to you about sexual purity. <laughs> and money and sexual ethics are two things that church doesn't want to talk about. You all know what I'm talking about. And yet I need to talk about it. And uh, if you've been coming in a new community in length of time, you know that we at our church value authenticity, honesty, real talk. Real talk. So here's real talk. I want to give you, um, this isn't part of the sermon, by the way. This is sort of, I was trying to decide. I'm like, when do I tell them this? Do I do it during sort of the welcome mission? Do I do it before the sermon? I was like, I think it's too much for them to hear all of this welcome mission. So I'm going to talk to you about it during this. So here's our giving information. By far, uh, 2014 has proven to be the most difficult year in terms of our church. Um, regards to giving. Um, we are $176,000 short of meeting our budgeted goal for this year. Um, this, is, this is where we are as a church in terms of giving. By the way, if you're visiting today or you're not a Christian, you completely just get to ignore me and listen in on a family-friendly family conversation, okay? So those of us that are part of this family, this is like dinner conversation. Rest of you, you like act like fly on the wall and just listening in. Here's what I want to say. I'm going to make this quick, straight talk quick, and then I'm going to, I need to preach. One, I want to thank you. I want to thank those of you that give faithfully and generously to this church. We, from the very get-go, been a church where a small handful of people have given faithfully. And it's because of that faithful giving of the few that our church has been able to do what we do. You understand that you're not just giving to new community, but through new community. You understand that what we do here as a church is to bring about spiritual, physical, social renewal to the city and beyond. And you understand that as you've been coming, that's what this church is about. And you support it because you believe in its mission. First and foremost, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Secondly, I want to talk to those of you that come regularly. You're not a member. You attend regularly. You've been coming for some length of time. You've been blessed by the ministry. You're blessed by the Sunday services. Blessed by the community. You've been coming regularly. And yet, you don't give. You don't give anything at all. Here's what I want to say to you. Please don't come here just to consume. If you're going to come here and be a part of a church, give. Don't just be a consumer. Give and be an investor. Our culture brainwashes into thinking that we can consume wherever, whenever, however. But that's not what we're about. So periodically, I'll say this, and I always hesitate because I need to be sensitive. Periodically, I'll get up here on a Sunday and I'll say this. If you continue to come here and you have no desire to invest your time, your energy, and your resources, you have zero desire to do that, go find the church where you can. Go find the church where you can invest your time, resources, and energy. Bless another church. But if you're going to continue to come to this church, 
and experience God, encounter community and say, I'm going to get, 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 consume, 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 but I have zero desire to give back. It's not my opinion. It's scripture. Go to a church where you can invest fully and bless those brothers and sisters. Can I say that? Third. (laughs) One person says, yo. You're speaking for maybe 10 people. Third, there are those of you who are visiting. You've been visiting. You're like a you know, visitor. You know who you are. And you've been church shopping. And then one of the things about church shopping is you don't give regularly like you used to, you know. And you've gotten kind of comfortable with that. You know, it feels kind of nice. You have extra money to do other things. Here's what I want to say to you. Check us out. I don't mind you dating our church, although that's so unbiblical. But check us out. Check us out. We're checking you out too, by the way, okay? Check us out. And at some point, at some point, if you want to go, I want to commit to this church and give because I believe in this mission and vision to renew the city spiritually, physically, socially. But until then, can I challenge you? Until then, until then, until then, would you consider giving to our special Christmas offering that we collect in the month of December to make up for this budget shortfall? You don't have to give regularly if you're not committed to this church, unless you're saying, I want to invest. But until then, we do this Christmas offering. Consider giving a one-time gift and saying, I like what they're doing. I believe in it. Lastly, I want to talk to those of you that are members of this church. Covenanted, committed to tithing. I don't know about you, but I take covenants and commitments very seriously. I know you do too. That's why you became a member. But for whatever reason, you stopped tithing. There are folks in our church who are members who stopped tithing because of financial hardship. We know them. We support them as a church. But there's some of you who stopped tithing, really for no reason. And I want to encourage you, if we're going to be counterculture and be different, one of the ways is we keep up with our commitments. We covenant to doing what we say we're going to do. So if you're a member of this church and you made that covenant, I want to encourage you. Follow through. Follow through. Don't say, I'm going to just commit when it's convenient for me. I'm going to commit when it's easy. I'm going to commit when it meets my needs. No, if you're going to commit, commit. Practically, what does this mean? Some of you, um, as I said, you used to tithe. You just stopped tithing. Really, for no reason. Things just got comfortable. You're like, I'd rather just spend this money on me. I just want to remind you, we don't own anything we have. We're just stewards. We're managers of what God has entrusted to us. Please use it to his priority. Some of you are like, I've never given. Where do I start? Start anywhere. Biblical principle, start anywhere. Pick a percentage, pick an income, and just be faithful and consistent to it. By the way, you'll never hear me say, you need to tie to the local church, because I believe you could tithe anywhere, frankly. Jenny and I don't give all 10. Well, actually, we do give tied to this church, and then we also support missionaries. Some of you guys going, I'm going to take 10%, and I'm going to support here. Da, da. I think that's totally biblical. You'll never hear me say, tied to the local church only. You can support a number of people, and we're grateful you do that. However, I think it's absolutely biblical that you prioritize giving to the local church, even as you support others. Pick a number, start somewhere, and be faithful to it. We're going to do Christmas offering all of December. For some of you, this way, jumpstart your spiritual discipline of giving again. It's really an issue of faith, matter of trust, matter of obedience. Church, I know we can do better. 
I know we can do better. Amen? Okay, so can we move on now? Okay. Let's segue to sex. You know, in, in, in seminary, you're taught that in order to grab the audience's attention, you know, you tell a story, you just kind of draw them in so they're interested. I don't need to. Sex. Sex. <laughs> Y'all right there. Okay. No introduction. That's what we're going to talk about today. Okay. We're going through the Ten Commandments, if you're joining us for the very first time. We're going through the Ten Commandments, and we need to, again, say some uh, foundational things, and then we'll dig into our text for today. Number one. The the title of this sermon series is Set Free to Live Free. Set Free to Live Free, the Ten Commandments. Why? Ten Commandments are given to people who have already been set free. God doesn't come to Israel and saying, if you obey these things, I will set you free from Egypt. He sets them free first, out of grace, out of mercy. Then as they stand in front of Mount Sinai, he gives them Ten Commandments. Set free, then to live free. Why are the Ten Commandments given? Are they given to restrict us, to bind us, so that our lives will be... Why are the Ten Commandments given? The Ten Commandments given, we've said throughout the sermon series, because it's God's way of saying, the one who created you, the one who designed you, the one who made you and this thing called life, this is the way to freedom. This is the way to life. We read the Ten Commandments, this, this is what you have to do, but God was essentially saying, this is who you are. If you want life flourishing, if you want life of freedom... Here's how you live. And he gives 10 commandments. Set free to live free. That's what we've been saying. When we break the 10 commandments, we don't necessarily break the commandments as we break ourselves. And I cannot think of a commandment that gets to the heart of this. When we break the commandments, we don't just break rules, but we break ourselves. Then when we come to the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Shall not commit adultery. Uh, a lot of the Ten Commandments, many of them are cast in the negative. That's why you see the sharp knots. But if you trace out each of the Ten Commandments throughout the Bible, throughout biblical ethic, you'll always discover that there's a positive invited as well as a negative prohibited. What do I mean? We're going to see thou shalt not kill is thou shalt be loving. Thou shalt not steal. And the negative and positive is thou shalt be radically generous. Thou shalt not commit adultery then. The negative actually falls from the positive. And you know what the positive is? <laughs> Again, straight talk today, okay? Frank, straight talk about sex. The positive of thou shalt commit adultery is thou shalt have great sex. That's what the commandment is literally saying. And you'll never understand the negative thing the Bible says about sexual sins unless you understand the tremendously positive, glorious view the Bible has of Sex. Two things real quick, and then we'll move on. When Christianity first burst onto the scene in Roman Empire, we've known this. There are two things about Christians that set them apart. They were radically generous, and they were radically pure. They were radically generous, and they're radically pure. And in those two character attributes, they were unlike anybody around that culture. They were radically generous with their finances and resources, and they were radically pure. Another way to say it is they were radically promiscuous with their money. But they were radically careful with their bodies. And the Roman world looked at them and said, that's the strangest thing I've ever seen. And yet, here's the thing. They won their culture 
First thing. Second thing is whenever I talk about the Christian biblical sex ethic, I always get people who go, where did you get this sort of fringe evangelical Christian thing, you know, marriage inside sex and then no where else. I'm like, fringe thing, excuse me. Let me, just, let me just break this down. So this fringe evangelical Christian thing. So all three branches of Christianity, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, all of Judaism, for crying out loud, even Islam, all of these major religions who don't agree on anything, all of them together, I'll grant this one thing. The biblical sex ethic, which is sex inside, inside the boundaries of a covenant of a marriage. So before you accuse Christians of going, this fringe sex ethic, realize that this fringe sex ethic is believed and lived out by lots and lots of people. But it gets more personal because I want to directly speak to a couple of you guys there's some of you who used to believe in the biblical sex ethic. You don't anymore. And here's the thing. You didn't come to this conclusion because you studied scriptures and came to conviction. No, you're where you are today because it's a way of justifying your behavior. You've come to the conclusion that sex is okay as long as you're in love. Sex is okay as long as you're almost married. You didn't come to that because you studied scripture, listen to God. You came to that, I'm going to be blunt here, because you got tired of listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And to numb his voice, you said, this is okay. <laughs> it's funny, throughout the sermon, I'm going to have people looking at me and then they're going to look down. And they're going to look up and they're going to look down. So if you, want, if you don't want to be that obvious, just stare at me the whole time, Okay. <laughs> Do you know why this is so serious? Can I just say, the Bible says when the Spirit comes into our lives, Holy Spirit, and the kingdom, the rule and reign of God comes into our lives, amazing thing happens where God begins to transform us. But here's the thing. The most damaging, not the most sinful, you'll never hear me say sexual sins are the most sinful. I don't believe in that. The most damaging, though, to the work that God wants to do in and through us is sexual sins. Do you know why? Sexual sins hits you at the core of your being and your soul, unlike other sins. I've seen people who've struggled with alcohol and drugs, hardcore drugs and alcohol for years, who when they came to know Christ, were able to be set free and move forward without shame and guilt. But I've seen people, I've seen people who because of sexual sins, struggle for years and years and years and years on end, even after conversion. Because there's something about sexual sins that gets to the core of who we are. And I'm going to talk about that in a way other sins don't. Please do not underestimate the consequences of sexual sin and overestimate your ability to handle the consequences of sexual sin. I say that again? If you're sitting there going, I could just, I could always stop tomorrow. Oh, this won't affect me like it does other people. Well, well, well they do it. So if you are involved in sexual sin, I'm going to talk about that. Please do not, do not underestimate the consequences of sexual sin. Sleeping around, pornography, adultery. Do not underestimate the consequences and overestimate your ability to handle the consequences. 
See, I wish, it's times like this, I wish I could have you sit on my side of the table. What do I mean? I wish I could give you insight into the story after story after story after story of 20-some years of being a pastor and hearing what people say about what they're dealing with as far as consequences of decisions and choices they've made. Pick it lightly. So frank talk, straightforward talk, and I pray to God, redemptive talk towards the end. But before that, it's going to get uncomfortable. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Let's break this down. What is God saying? The word adultery in the Bible means sex outside the covenant. Literally, sex outside the covenant. In the strictest form, it means that you should not have sex with someone you're not married to. That's outside the covenant. But inherent in the idea of sex outside the covenant, being outside the biblical sex ethic, is this idea that sex without a covenant, that is without marriage, is also wrong. I'm going to say it again. Sex is not for in love people. Sex is not for I'm almost married people. Sex is for covenant of marriage. Where do you get that, Peter? You've seen me talk about this before. Genesis 2, 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the word cleaves literally means to make or cut a covenant, and it's the essence of what a marriage is. In a covenant, listen, in a covenant, listen, in a covenant, you're making a public commitment to permanently and exclusively and legally sharing your entire life with someone else. To make a covenant is to say, I am publicly committing before God and others to sharing exclusively, permanently, and legally everything that I have with you. It's in that context, God says. It's in that context of a covenant between a husband and why God says sex is intended. And every time I preach on this, there's some singles in our church who go, marriage, commitment. Actually, let me be clear. Single guys in our church. Ooh, marriage, commitment. (laughs) Who would want that? Do you know why you react like that? Do you know why? Because you have no idea how good relationships work. Ladies, please calm down a little bit, okay? Please, don't get so excited. I'm not just going to bash the single men in our church today because I'm going to talk to you also. The reason why single men and women, frankly, the reason why we go covenant, commitment, marriage, oh, the reason why we do that is because we don't understand that the Bible says that a covenant provides the context for a relationship that is more intimate, more fulfilling, and more satisfying, and more loving because it's permanent, because it's exclusive, because it's whole life. Did you hear that? See, we live in a consumeristic culture. In a consumeristic culture, that's you and me, a consumer relationship is one in which you have a vendor, and a vendor's job is to provide you, the consumer, with goods and with products. So we relate to the vendor in such a way where you go in, hey, hey, I don't adjust to you, you adjust to me. As long as you provide the product and the goods that I need, we're going to be okay. As long as you stop doing that, then I'm going to go look somewhere else. So if their monthly fee is cheaper, I go with them. If that phone over there is more bells and whistles, I'm going to switch my phone. A consumer relationship. 
you adjust to me. My needs are more important than this relationship. That's a consumer relationship. A covenant relationship is the exact opposite. A covenant relationship says, my needs are secondary to the commitment that I make. A covenant relationship says, you don't adjust to me. I adjust to you. A covenant relationship says, my needs are not at the top. So as long as you keep providing my... My needs are secondary to serving you. I mean, if you're following something, you're going, what, 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 what covenant relationship? I'll tell you why it's so beautiful. Let me just put it up here. Covenant relationship, you finally have a zone of security, a zone of safety, where you could finally be the real you, be yourself. Do you know why some of you that are dating are so tired all the time? Because in a consumer relationship, which is what you have, you're constantly marketing. You're constantly selling yourself. I'm looking at a fellow right now who I had dinner with. And he said he went on a date, you know, through eBay. By the way, Dan Rodakovich and I talk about this all the time. Dan Rodakovich. I'm like, I'm 44, going to be 45. I'm like, I have no, if I was 20-something, and I'm just letting you know, if I was 20-something today, I wouldn't know what to do. Because this whole online dating thing, it's like a four, I, do, 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 do. I have no, I like, what? You just go online and you meet some perfect stranger and uh, I'm like, and now listen, I hear it all the time. And I, you're probably looking at me like, he's not as cool as I thought he was. <laughs> no, I fool you. See, I fool you. I'm not. I was talking to this guy. He went on this day, and basically the question was along the lines of how much do you make? You know, what are your goals and aspirations? What do you want to drive? And this is a guy saying, the woman's asking him that, and he's sitting there going, he's like, I was shocked. I'm going, why, why though? Because in the consumer relationship, you have to sell. You have to market. Why? Because you are just to me. My needs are more important than this relationship. So you're constantly selling, marketing, and you never, ever get real with who you are, your flaws, your weaknesses, your mistakes, your past. Why? Because as soon as you present, God forbid, a part of you that's flawed, they're going, ah, not interested. But a covenant relationship, can you imagine when someone's going, I'm committed to you, regardless Regardless, yeah. So I can kind of show you the, 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 oh, Dan, that's so cute. Dan's like this with Wendy. That's so cute, man. <laughs> How long have you been married? 37 years. That's be- beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, we should call, yeah, yeah, yeah. In a covenant, in a covenant relationship, listen, when you commit it, you, you could be you. You could be the real you. Why? Because you don't have to be afraid. Are you going to? Are you going to bail if I share? Are you going to, are you going to, in a covenant relationship, you go, I'm here. I'm committed. And you can go, I could, you mean I could take this mask off? You could take your mask off. We're all impacted by this. Ladies, I want to just speak to you for a second. Women. Our church is the furthest thing from being a prudish, ultra-conservative church. You know that, right? But I need to say this. From years and years of hundreds of conversations with single men. Ladies, if you are trying to attract the right guy, 
a healthy, godly relationship, guys, you need to attract and draw their attention to your eyes and not to your body. I'll say it again. If you're looking for the right guy and the right relationship, you need to attract their attention to your eyes. Not to your, what do I mean? You know how you can look into a guy's eyes and go, I know exactly what he's thinking. Guys can do the same with you. Guys can look into your eyes and see what's in your heart. I'm just going to say this. This doesn't apply to all of you because there's some of you going, somebody else needs to hear that because I don't. Thank you for that. But for the, anybody here that's sitting there going, because again, we're all influenced by this consumer. I got to sell. I got to market. I got to da, 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 present. I'm telling you, the right guy looking for someone who's saying, my eyes. If you draw attention to something besides your eyes, you might be sending the right signal to the wrong guy and the wrong signal to the right guy. I'm just saying, ladies, again, hundreds of conversations with single men. Please draw attention to your eyes, not to your body. Second thing about a covenant relationship. In a covenant relationship, when you're committed to a person, in spite of your feelings, eventually deeper feelings grow. What do I mean? The other covenant relationship in the Bible between a husband and wife is the parent-child relationship. In parenting, <laughs> I wish parent-child relationship was one of consumer relationship. Parker, make me some dinner. <laughs> Sophie, go get daddy something cold to drink. <laughs> it doesn't happen for years. Probably never, okay? <laughs> parent-child relationship, it's never ever a consumer relationship you're constantly as a parent adjusting to them but what's weird is that as you do you're so invested in your children that even when they act in unlovable ways you love them do you know why because you're invested because you're committed it's an amazing thing about a covenant relationship of what happens when you commit so i picked on the ladies guys can i pick on you for a second Men, I'm afraid of commitment. Get over yourself. Ladies, you can clap. Nobody for that? Okay. No, I'm half joking. When I hear men say, I'm afraid of commitment, here's what I want to say. Particularly when they say, you know, I just, I just don't feel it. There's this, maybe, maybe, maybe the reason why we're not feeling it because it's because you've never Men and women too. Could it be we have it backwards? Could it be that we're sitting there going, I'm waiting for the feelings to come. I'm waiting for the feelings to come. I'm waiting for the feelings to come. She's kind of nice, you know, and I think she might make a good wife. And I think, but I'm waiting for the feelings. Maybe the feelings come when you say, I'm going to commit. Uh, if you're sitting there looking at me all strange like, what? Could it be? Could it be? It's because we've been brainwashed by this consumer culture that says, I got to feel it. I got to feel it. I, and I'm talking about beyond infatuation. Maybe the deeper feelings come once you go, I'm committing to you. I'm committing to you. So instead of waiting for the feelings to catch up, maybe, maybe, if there's someone that you're dating or with, getting to know, and you're going, she or he is somebody that I could see myself, maybe once you in saying, I'm not just going to bail. Maybe. Maybe. Deeper feelings follow. And third, related to real quick, in a covenant relationship, there's freedom. What do I mean? I, I, somebody help me out here. What does this mean? 
Oh, there was no chemistry. What does that mean? What does that mean? Because chemistry, I go, sophomore in high school. It's a class that I took. What does there's no chemistry mean? I'm being facetious. Of course it means uh, there's no spark, no feeling. I just want to say this. And again, every time I talk about this, I get emailed. What do you mean? Chemistry is important. Here's just what I want to say. Here's what I want to say. Maybe. Again, I just say maybe because I don't want to be. I know the truth. Maybe. 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 Maybe it's our I need to feel it chemistry that's actually keeping us bound. What do I mean? Where do your feelings come from? I'll tell you where my feelings come. My feelings get affected by the weather. <laughs> my feelings get affected by what I ate last night. My feeling, you see where I'm going? Our feelings get affected by a thousand things. And are you telling me that you're going to base your morality on your feelings? Are you telling me that you are making critical decisions about life on your feelings? Is that what you're saying? Because if you are, I am telling you, you're not free. I am free. No, you're not. You're a puppet on a string of what? Of your feelings. You want to be free? Say, I commit. I'm here regardless. I adjust to you. You don't adjust to me. I'm here for the long haul. Hey, why are you talking about this? I'll tell you why I'm talking about this. Because the Bible says that sex is not a consumer good. It is a covenant good. The Bible says sex was not intended for you to consume To meet your needs. The Bible says God created sex as a covenant good to say to somebody in the context of a full commitment, here is how I serve you. That's what God created sex for. God didn't create sex so that you could feel good about yourself, so that you could feel adored. You know, I want to feel good about myself. I want to feel adored. So I think I'm going to go find somebody who has sex with me. God says God created sex as a covenant good, not a consumer good. When you use sex as a consumer good, do you realize what you're doing? You're treating people like objects to possess and to consume. You don't even need to be a Christian for crying out loud. If you have any sense of morals, and inside you're going, oh, I think all people ought to be treated with dignity, then why are you having sex without a covenant? Do you realize what you're doing when you use sex to say, I want to feel good about myself? You're using it. To consume, this sounds serious, a person, a person, an image made in the image of God. Church, are you hearing me? The Bible says sex outside of a covenant is wrong and sex without a covenant is wrong because what sex is supposed to be, sex is saying I belong completely and exclusively to you. And physically, sex is, I'm acting it out. Sex is saying, I belong completely, exclusively to you, and I'm acting it out. I am giving you my body as a token of how I've given you my whole life. And in that context, sex becomes this deep nurturing thing, this deep, deep 
nurturing thing that allows you and I to experience intimacy. And you all know, sex is just, it's what we're after. It's intimacy. It's to be fully known and to be fully accepted without any fear of rejection. Sex is a way of saying, I've given you my whole life, and now I'm acting that out with my body. So it's a covenant renewal ceremony. It acts like cement, like glue to two people who've said, I am completely and exclusively permanently giving my entire life to you. And in that context, it strengthens your ability to trust. It strengthens your ability to trust yourself with somebody, which enables you to experience intimacy. Does this sound foreign to you? For some of us, they're going, oh, that just sounds weird. Do you know that Apostle Paul, 2,000 years ago, was dealing with the same thing? He writes this letter, and in this letter to the church in Corinth, city of Corinth, he says, biblical sex ethic is just going to sound like, what? Just, why? I just, why? And he says, that's because the biblical sex ethic directly goes to two approaches to sex that's prevalent in that culture and our culture. And we're going to look at that briefly, and we're done. 1 Corinthians 6.12 is where we find this text, where Paul is writing to a group of people who came out of just a sensual, just, just, I mean, sexual culture. And these are Christians that are trying to navigate biblical sex ethic. And Paul writes this letter to the Christians in this city, and he says this, verse 12 of chapter 6, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Church, just because I can doesn't mean I should. Just because I can. There is a world of difference between can and best. I knew what world of difference between can and best. Freedom isn't being able to have whatever we crave whenever we want it. True freedom is going without whatever we crave and being okay without it. You're not free if you're sitting there going, well, I, whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want it. And yet you're miserable when you don't have it. You're not free. It owns you. You're bound. You're the furthest thing from free. Verse 13. You say food for the stomach and stomach for food, and yet God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And right there, what Paul is doing is he's saying a common saying of that time, and he's finding the two other philosophies of sex that were prevalent, just saturating the Greco-Roman world at the time. And they were the Platonic view and mystery religions. Everybody say Platonic view. Mystery religions. And I'm going to just greatly simplify those things, oversimplify in like three minutes. Plato and Platonists, which was one view, said this, the body is bad.
Plato and Platonists. The body is bad, matter is bad, the soul is good. Sex has to do with the body. Therefore, sex is dirty. Sex is evil. If you want to be spiritual and godly, so on and so forth, have nothing to do with sex. Platonists. Platonists. Then the mystery religions, and their view said, sex is like food. When you get hungry, you eat. Just an appetite. Don't say no. Don't repress it. It's unhealthy for you. When you feel like eating, you have food. When you feel sexy, you sex. Or, you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> Just making up words. This is what happens when I have to hold a mic. Like, I start, like, losing the ability to speak, you know, English. Platonists, mystery religions. Put it another way. Prudes and pagans. Prudes and pagans. really interesting church is that prudes and pagans aren't just around 2,000 years ago. We still have them today. And I'm going to just give me like three minutes to address the prudes in our church. <laughs> you don't think you're a prude? You are. Let me show you in a little bit, okay? And then I want to talk to the pagans in our church, okay? Talk to the pagans. All right. First of all, prudes. What do I mean? I wish I had more time to talk about this, and I've done this in the past, but I just need to be quick about this. Paul carefully and vividly shows that the Christian sex ethic is neither prudish or pagan against the prudes. And I wish, again, I had more time. 1 Corinthians 7, the very next chapter, where Paul is talking about marriage, there's one version in modern English where verses 1 through 5, Paul's talking about 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. He's talking about marital sexual love. And essentially, one translator said, Paul's basically saying, get on with it. Get to it. My translation, <laughs> get to it. In other words, Paul is saying in the context of marriage, sex isn't just permitted. Listen very carefully. It's commanded. Husbands are going, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Don't use me and my teaching to, you know. By the way, I'm, I'm going to talk, talk, talk about married couples a little bit later. And in, in all seriousness, the sexual dysfunction within marriage is, is, um, is something that actually is very common in Christian couples. And I do a lot of counseling around that, but, but before we get to that. And then there's the book of Song of Solomon. Have you ever read the book of Song of Solomon? It's dirty. <laughs> if you're not a Christian here, I'm so glad you came today. Song of Solomon is graphic love poetry. In Hebrew, it's even worse. Bible translators wimp out every single time. I'm serious. But let me show you. Let me show you an English translation of Song of Solomon and the glorious beautiful view of sex and sexuality that God has. Watch this. I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to make any comment. I'm just going to read it. Song of Solomon, chapter 7. How beautiful are your sandal feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. 
Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are like the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabin. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its dresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasing my love with your delights. Your stature is like that of a palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said I will climb the palm tree. And this is the rated G version. You know what I'm saying? I will climb the palm tree and I will take hold of its roots. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine. The fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the... Does this sound like God saying, Marisak, God says it's glorious. It's wonderful. The Bible talks about glories of marital sex without blushing. And the thing is, we all have this label of like platonic view. That's why we're giggling, kind of uncomfortable. Ooh, you know. And the Bible, very straightforward when it talks about sex in the wrong perspective. And it's very straightforward when it says it's beautiful. It's done right. But if you're not a Christian here, are you, are you like shocked by the erotic nature of this language? Are you shocked if you're not a Christian going, that's not what I thought Christianity was. Here's what I would say to you. Here's what I would say to you. Before you reject Christianity, make sure you're understanding and rejecting the right thing. Before you go, I reject Christianity. Make sure you understand and you're rejecting the right thing. The Bible says, and if you're a Christian, by the way, and you're a little bit offended by this, you're a little bit like put off, like, is this appropriate for something? Basically, if, if you're more pure than God, I just want to push you and say this. You might be under the influence of Plato and the Greek notion of the body than what Scripture says. I'm done with that prudish thing, and then let's go on to the pagan thing, because that's where we are. Paul then also deals with the pagan perspective. He says sex is not just an appetite. Sex can't be just treated like an appetite because sex affects you at the very core of your being, your soul, unlike other appetites. When sin entered the world and disordered every aspect of creation, the disordering that came to our sexuality, much more profound, much deeper than other appetites. C.S. Lewis gives this example. He says, imagine you're a visitor to a country. And you want to find out what the customs are like. And you're observing and you're watching. And you notice that all the college students, college boys, when they go to college and they're away from their parents, first thing they do is they go into their rooms and they unpack their suitcases and they roll out these posters. These posters, these bright colorful posters. They put them on the wall. And they're beautiful colorful Photoshop pictures of apples. It's shiny. Spray water on it so it glistens. You go to another room and it's a beautiful colorful poster of a hamburger with 
in and out. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It's wonderful. And all the college kids walk to each other's rooms and go, oh my gosh, look at that. Look at that. Isn't that incredible? And you're like, what the heck is going on? You walk, and it's nighttime. And a group of men walk into a gentleman's club. It's dark. There's bump and grinding music. In the center of the stage, there's this pole. And there's this thing that's covering this thing. And a person walks out, and they slowly uncover this thing. And underneath it is this beautiful, glistening turkey. People are like, ooh, ah. I'll stop because it's so ridiculous. If you were a visitor to country, you would look at that and go, what is wrong with these people? Either they're starving or their appetites have been completely disordered. C.S. Lewis says, that's how our culture reacts to sex. That's how our culture reacts to sex. The disordering that occurred in our soul when the fall entered. We are like that foreign country. When we act, somebody will come and go, what is wrong with these people? What they would assume or conclude. Is there something this terribly disordered? Think about it. We cannot drive two blocks without seeing posters. We sell cars. We sell TVs. We sell hamburgers with half-naked women, and we all think it's normal. We all just kind of go, yeah, that's what we do. We all just shrug our shoulders in this and never think for a moment that for a culture that's been as obsessed with sex, time, effort, money, resources, has a culture and society be lonelier. And struggling to find relationships that will deafen the sense of something is wrong. Paul says, how can you possibly treat then sex like any of the appetites? You know, I get hungry, I eat. He says, do you not understand that the disordering and the effect that sin has to what we crave in our sex is completely been disordered? Have you thought about that? Married couples, singles, have you thought about how you approach sex has been so utterly disordered by the fall that what you think is normal? What is sex for? God's design. Paul finishes. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. So therefore, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from porneia. From We get the word pornography. But porneia in Greek literally describes any kind of sex outside of marriage. And Paul doesn't say, you know, it'd be kind of good for you to not do that. 
He says, run, flee, get the heck away. Why? What does one flesh mean? One flesh is not just physical union. One flesh, flesh, the word flesh in Greek is soma, literally meaning embodied personhood. That is personhood involving the body, the mind, and soul. And Paul says what happens is when there is sexual union, there is a whole embodied personhood union so that it's not just a physical bonding it's a bonding of your body, of your soul, of your spirit, of your mind, of your heart. God created sex for intimacy and whole life oneness. Sex is saying, I belong completely and exclusively to you, and I'm acting that out. I'm acting that out. I'm giving you my body as a token of I've given you my whole life. God created sex. Listen, some of you singles, you know this experientially. God created sex so that what you do with your body has a force to it that makes your soul want to do the same thing. You don't just sleep and go, that was good. You sleep and there's another part of you that says, but what about the rest of, what about the rest, what about the rest? This is the reason why sex gets to that thing that we all, Christian, non, we all have. We all long to give ourselves to someone completely hoping that that person will do this. Can I just ask, is this a desire of you that you want to give yourself utterly to somebody and have somebody give themselves back to you like that? Anybody? We all do. And sex it's a way of saying, I'm giving you my body, which is one of the most vulnerable things you can do to be naked before somebody. I'm giving you my body as a way of giving you my whole self. And when you do that, even though it's scary, and that other person reciprocates, that other person goes, me too. Me too. I'm going to give you my body. I'm going to give everything else. When they reciprocate whole life giving and the act of physical giving, you experience what God created us to experience, which is intimacy, to be fully known and to know someone. To be fully known and to know someone. But this is the reason why when you use sex outside the bounds of a covenant, it works backwards. It works backwards. Inside of a covenant, when you give your body to somebody as a way of giving your whole life, it allows you to trust more and more, commit more and more. It cements that relationship. But when you do it without a covenant, it works backwards. Meaning, you start messing with the apparatus, the commitment apparatus, the thing that God gave you to enable you to trust somebody deeply. It begins to work against you. Listen, do you know how many marriage counseling sessions I've been to where someone is struggling with jealousy? And I'll stop at one point and I go, Did somebody cheat on somebody? Or is somebody struggling with pornography here? And inevitably, inevitably, somebody will say yes. Why? When you're unfaithful, it disrupts and begins to destroy the commitment apparatus that God gave you. This is why some of you singles... You're sleeping around, you go, there's nothing to it. 
It's not becoming easier for you to trust somebody, is it? It's becoming harder. It's not easier to be known and to know. It's becoming harder. Far from physical appetite, God gets to the heart of an inherent yearning long in the human heart for intimacy. One more biblical truth and then practical application, okay? Because I need to talk about masturbation, pornography, and unhealthy sex and marriage and all that stuff if I have time today. But let me, let me just get to one thing. and then I, Do you know what sex is? Sex is a signpost. You know what sex is? Sex is saying there's more. In the Bible... Old Testament, God says, I am the bridegroom and Israel is my bride. New Testament, Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom and you the church, you're the bride, right? And then Paul, <clears throat> Paul's talking about the union, the bonding between Christ and his church in Romans 7, 4. Here's what he says. Listen really carefully. Just as a woman puts herself in her husband's arms and fruit is born into the world through her body from that union, so a Christian, you put yourself in Jesus' arms and good things come out into the world through you. Do you know what Paul is saying? <laughs> Give me, I love your laugh. I know you're laughing like a thousand miles. Do you know what Paul is saying? Paul is saying that sex is a parable of the gospel. What do I mean? Sex is a foretaste of the joy and ecstasy that you will experience fully when you see God face to face. For those of us that follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, say amen if you do. A day will come when you will stand before God and you will see him face to face. Do you know what that means? I don't know about you, but I'm like getting right now. You probably can't see, but it's goosebumps. A day will come when we will stand before God and we will be totally naked. I don't know physically, but we'll be totally vulnerable. Totally vulnerable. We'll be totally vulnerable. Meaning, the foundations of our lives will be laid bare. Bare. We'll sit there and go, boop. All of me. Flaws, mistakes. All of me. Like, I'm going to stand before God and there will be no more masking, no more hiding. Just, duh. And God will look at me and he'll go, I delight. You sit there and go, well, I knew that. No, you don't. No, you don't. Not like that day. Because on that day, you will be naked like you've never been naked before before God. And you will be loved like you've never experienced God's love. You and I will stand before God face to face. And we will be utterly vulnerable and yet we'll be utterly safe. God will see us for all that we are and you and I will never, ever again experience shame or guilt or condemnation. And sex, the Bible says, is a foretaste and a glimpse of this towering joy and delight we will know 
to the nth degree and we see God face to face. Do you know what that means? There's a reason why married, even if married, you could have the most mind-blowing sex. Like, that can't get any better. The Bible says, "Mm, I disagree. The Bible says, you think that's amazing? Wait till you see God face to face. But do you know what that means? That means for those of you that are longing for fulfillment, for satisfaction, for somebody to love you, you'll never, ever experience that in sex while you're on earth. It's a signpost. It's like somebody driving to Chicago, stopping at Gary, Gary, Indiana, going, Woohoo! We're in Chicago! No, you ain't. You and Gary, not in Chicago. Gary, Indiana, cannot be furthest thing from Chicago. <laughs> it's the worst. It stinks in Gary, Indiana. No, I, I got to be careful. <laughs> no, but I just, I wasn't even planning to go there, but I will go there. Some of us are like, Gary, Indiana. Why would you want to settle for Gary, Indiana when Chicago awaits you? I know that's where I was going to go, but fine, whatever. <laughs> practical, practical. And I, I, church, thank you for hanging in there with me. Like, I, don't, I literally needed two sermons worth of I'm squeezing this in. And I just, some of you are trying to deal with loneliness through sex. Some of you are trying to deal with loneliness through sex. There are two things to keep in mind. First, the only real cure for your loneliness is the thing that sex points to, and that is intimacy with your father. Remember that sex is only a signpost to what really fulfills you. And if anybody's going to go, well, easy for you to say, you're married. Ask married couples. Ask married couples. Ask married couples. And any truth-telling married couple will tell you. It's temporary. The permanent thing is somewhere else. Secondly, when you misuse sex, it works backwards. Instead of making you less lonely, less lonely, which is how it's supposed to work, it always makes you lonelier. Practical applications, and I'm done. One, I want you to see that the real issue, fundamental issue in your struggle with sexual purity is idolatry. Everybody say idolatry. Remember why the Ten Commandments begins the way it begins. Do not have any of the gods before me. What do I mean? I'm going to speak directly to some of you. Some of you might say I'm a Christian, but, you're, but your real God is God of freedom. Your real God is a God of independence. You don't want to be accountable to anybody. You don't want somebody to call you out. You don't want to have to commit. So you know what you need to do? You will need to have sex outside of marriage because you don't want the other stuff that marriage comes with it. Your real God is independence. Your idolatry is freedom. And as long as that's the case, you will never get around the biblical sex ethic. And you know what else? God won't be real to you. You come here every week, God will not be real to you. Do you know why? Think about this. If we can't have true intimacy with somebody without becoming totally committed to them, and if sex is a foretaste, a sign of our intimacy with God, how can you experience intimacy with God while remaining independent of him? Does it make any sense for God to come around and go, you know what? It doesn't matter who you worship. I will still pour out my love and mercy to you. Of course not. Do you know why some of us 
are hitting a ceiling in terms of intimacy with God, you have not said to God, I am covenanting to you. You're my exclusive. You're my priority. There is no other. And as long as we continue to be, I will have you, God, on the side. I will have you when I need you. I will use you and consume you for my needs. You will continue to experience lack of reality with God. Some of you, it's not independence. Your idol is marriage. You think you really can't be happy unless you're married. You realize that the thing that you want then is not God. It's marriage. And I've told people, stay away from people for whom marriage is their idol because they will make your life miserable. Why? Because they will make you into the complete source of their joy and satisfaction and you will never be able to carry that weight. So run. Run. Run from that person. Pastoral two things. Masturbation. Real talk. Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about masturbation. Okay, two things. Number one, does masturbation fulfill God's vision for sex? God's vision for sex is one of utter self-donation. Last time I checked, masturbation is all about you. God created sex to say, I use this to serve you. I use this to self-donate. I use this as a way of saying it's not about me, it's about you. Does masturbation fulfill God's vision for sex? Forget about rules and regulations and the... Does it fulfill God's vision for sex that's completely other-centered? And masturbation is very closely associated with pornography. I've seen marriages fall apart because of addiction to pornography. I've seen engagements break apart because of addiction to pornography. And I've also seen this. And this is what I want to briefly share with you. In an incredible research called Premarital Sex in America group of researchers made a list of commonly held beliefs about sex and they showed through empirical evidence that they're untrue and one of these lies that our culture continues to believe in is that pornography won't affect your relationship it's personal it's individual and in pornified culture they say three things i'm just going to read them and then move on one people use pornography have crushingly unrealistic expectations regarding physical appearance and sexual performance this is the reason why husbands who are addicted to pornography If you're addicted to pornography and your husband, consciously and subconsciously, you are laying on images that you're seeing on the screen onto your wife. And eventually, not only will you be found out, eventually your marriage will begin to suffer. Second thing, a significant number of male pornography users have diminished tolerance for the difficulties of real relationships, thereby shrinks the marriage both for women. Studies show that men who are addicted to pornography or regularly use pornography are less interested and, frankly, unwilling to deal with the mess of relationships. Because, you know, you're dealing with a person, not an image on a screen. Like, they talk back to you. They go, I don't like you doing that. They say, where are you going? <laughs> when are you coming back? Literally, researchers are saying the pool is shrinking because there are guys, more and more men are being addicted to pornography, and they can't stand the work that goes in to making relationships work. This is scary to me. It's frightening. That means, ladies, 
If you're dating a guy, you need to ask him straight up, are you using pornography? If you suspect that they are, ask them. And guys, third, women are increasingly being forced to accommodate sexual behaviors and appearances to the images and styles of pornography. It's times like this where I want to um, basically raise my daughter Sophie so that she never leaves the house for the rest of her life. I want to protect my precious daughter. I want to protect the single women and the married women in our church family who are buying into this lie that says, unless I conform to our culture's values and standards, nobody will find me attractive. And the scary thing for me is men, Christian men, we've bought into this lie. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. There's a profound relationship between my moral purity and my ability to see God. When you're running from God, involved in sexual sin, I'm going to tell you exactly what happens. It's like a fog envelops you. When you repent, get right with God, get a community of people, keep you accountable, it's like that fog clears and there's clarity. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is pornography, messing around, sleeping around, cheating, is it really worth it to miss God, to not see God, to not hear God? Blessed are the pure in heart. You know what that means? Some of you, you're living with your boyfriend and your girlfriend, and you need to move out. Real talk? Can we do real talk? Some of you, you need to break up with him or her. You knew, you've known. And this morning, it's just God prompting you and going, you know this is what's right. Some of you, you need to make that phone call one more time and change your number. Some of you need to cancel cable TV. If watching Game of Thrones is affecting you and your moral purity, cancel it. Some of you need to put filters on your computer. Frankly, for some of us, that's not enough. We need to have no access to Internet in our home. And for some of us, at the end of the service, we need to be able to acknowledge that there is sexual brokenness in us and invite the church family to say, will you pray for me? First step towards healing, confession. It'll be healing to you and not surprising to God. CC, come on up. But I got to end on a gospel note. If there are those of you that are sitting there going, Peter, where do I go from here? I want you to know you can find grace and forgiveness for your sexual past. Everybody, everybody, please, just give me like two more minutes and I'm done. For some of us, what holds us in bondage to sexual sin in the present is the fact that we have not let go of our sexual sins in the past. For some of us, the reason why we continue to fall back in that sin is because we're hearing Satan's lies that says you're damaged goods. You're damaged goods. 
And every time we want to be set free, Satan, whoop, flashback. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? Do you remember that? Do you remember that? And we kind of go, I'm damaged goods. I'm damaged goods. I'm damaged goods. And you'll never be set free in your sexual present if you can't let go of your sexual past. How do you let go? It's recognizing that through Jesus, forgiven. Jesus, through his blood, there is no sin, past, present, and future that can't be forgiven. Amen? <laughs> this is when you need heavily integrate and go, there is nothing that I've done in the past that God can't forgive. There's nothing that I'm doing in the present that God can forgive. And it's recognizing that the essence and the heart of the gospel is God delights in taking the most messed up people and showing them as showcases of grace. I'm working on this sermon series called Mothers of Jesus starting on Mother's Day in 2015. Tamar, a prostitute. Rahab. The list goes on. Jesus' genealogy for crying out loud. It's his ancestral mothers. And God says, this is where Jesus came from. Could God be any clearer in saying, who in here possibly thinks that there's nothing that can't be forgiven? Is that good news? Oh, come on now. (laughs) I don't care who you are, what you've done. Jesus says, not only do I want to forgive you, I want to showcase your life as a testimony of my grace. Then go to the gospel. Titus chapter 2, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no, that is grace, to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You can't overcome sexual temptation with willpower. You can't overcome sexual temptation by mechanical change. You can't. You have to go to the gospel. What do I mean? You have to go to the gospel that says, in Christ I am blameless, I am holy, I am righteous. In Christ I am completely forgiven. In Christ I am washed clean, pure as snow. In Christ he sees me as his son Jesus. Why is that important? Because if that is not the case, unless you know that you are unashamed before God and totally accepted, unless you know that you can be totally vulnerable and totally safe in the presence of God, being naked in front of somebody will either be disgusting to you because you don't recognize the acceptance of God in Christ or being naked in front of somebody will be consuming to you because you do not recognize acceptance of the grace of God. Unless you recognize the gospel, you're going to be a prudent and says, I can't. can't." Or you're going to be consumed and idolize sex. Freedom comes when we say, I'm accepted, I'm holy, I'm blameless, I'm righteous. So I will gladly embrace what God has set for me. Saying, I live my life in purity, in commitment to my covenant to Him. That's the only way, church. Not be a prude nor a pagan. Idolize sex and disgusted by it. It's the only way to say, I live according to your, your standards for me. As I'm preparing this sermon this week, I thought about the numerous conversations I have all the time about men and women in our church. 
who have level of brokenness or things in the past or things you're currently doing. And every time I have coffee or a meal, the thing in me just rises and going, we as a church need to pray for you. We as a church need to pray for you. We as a church need to pray for you. We need you to know that there's no judgment, that we love you. We need you to know that we're not going to think you're where. We need you to know that we are here for you, that we want to be here for you, and that we will be that community that walks alongside of you in this journey. So we can't end something like today and going, so good to see you. I'll see you next week. Let you walk out. We need to be the church and saying, those of us in this room that are struggling with stuff from our sexual past, those of us that struggle with addiction to pornography, for those that struggle, we need to be able to go, I need prayer. I need you to come around me and pray for me and pray with me. Do we do that this morning? See, I don't want to single anybody out. Say, I don't want to go, so can you stand, you know? What I want to do I want us to be able to just pray for each other. Because I know for sure, for sure, for sure. And nobody's sitting there going, I am pure. We all have varying levels of struggle. Amen. So here's what I want to let's all stand together. Let's all stand together. And I want you to turn around your pews and grab hands of like four or five people around you. And please, 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 don't, don't leave. Don't. You know, I got services done, heard the sermon, I got to go. Stay for the prayer time. Stay for the prayer time. And I'm hearing in my head voices of some folks in our church who say, you know, it's uncomfortable when you ask us to do that. So here's what I want you to do. If you simply stand, you want to pray, you can. If you don't, you can. So in your small circles of four to five people, as your hands are held, anybody that feels led, anybody that feels led, okay, could pray on behalf of the group. Pray on behalf of the group. Make it short. Don't do sermon prayers. Make it short. So anybody that feels led, and we will totally utterly respect anybody that just wants to stand saying, I just want, I don't mind holding hands. I'm just standing here. I just, just, you could just stand there and be blessed by the prayers, okay? And we're not going to spend a lot of time. I'm going to give you about two minutes. So make it quick. Make it quick because I'm going to have the worship team then lead us. So make it quick. Anybody that feels led within your circle, just Offer up a prayer for your brothers and your sisters, your church family. 